If you have your Bible with you this evening, we are in the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 10 is where you'll find our text tonight, Mark's Gospel chapter 10. And we're going to begin reading uh, just two verses this evening, verses 17 uh, and 18 of this uh, Gospel. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Verse 17 says, And when he, that's the Lord Jesus, was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. We trust the Lord will add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. In our opening text this evening, the Lord Jesus makes a very simple yet a very profound statement when he says, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. Now there's a clear implication in that statement, and I'm not sure if you've picked it up or not, but we need to consider it. Here it is. If Jesus is not God, Jesus is not good. Did you hear what I said? If Jesus is not God, Jesus is not good. You cannot have it any other way. You see, there are people who want to think of Jesus as a good person, as a good teacher, as a moralizer, as a prophet of old, but they repel at the thought that he should in any sense be deity, that he is in any sense the son of God. But the truth of the matter is that if Jesus is not God, he is not good. In fact, far from being good, he would be utterly evil. It's as simple as that. But Jesus is God. He is God the Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, and he's the Son of God. Uh, He is both God's man and man's God. Now, we've been thinking these past few weeks leading up to Christmas, just before Christmas, about how we can know certain truths. How can we know, for example, that there is a God? And we talked about that idea, how that we know there's a God because of the law of cause and effect, because of design in the universe because of the morality that is built in within each and every one of us because every thought of God tells us there's a God and then we considered how we would how we would know the Bible is the word of God and we thought about its marvelous unity a book written over 1600 years three different continents 40 different writers three different languages with the diverse occupations from shepherds to kings and yet they wrote as one whole We thought about its indestructibility, how the people have tried to banish and burn the Bible and have been unsuccessful in removing the Bible from society. We thought about its historical accuracy and its scientific accuracy and its prophetic accuracy. And we thought about its life-changing power. And we came to the conclusion that there is a God and he has revealed himself in the Bible as the word of God. But this evening I want to ask this question. How can we know that Jesus is the Son of God? Now that's a really important question. Because if you do not believe that Jesus is the Son of God, my friend, your soul is doomed and damned. 
You must believe that Jesus is the Son of God in order to be saved. Now, before we go anywhere else this evening, let's begin by defining what we mean when we say that Jesus is the Son of God. In Scripture, when you have the designation Son of something, that uh, that. Something is what you are completely identified with. So, for example, you have a man called Barnabas. He is called the son of consolation. That means his whole life was identified with comfort and consolation. He was an ever, ever ongoing blessing to everybody he came into contact with. You have Judas. He's the son of perdition. Perdition means ruination. When you think about somebody whose soul certainly went to hell, you'd have to think about Judas Iscariot. He's completely identified with eternal damnation and ruination. So when we say that Jesus is the Son of God, we're saying that he is completely identified with God as God. He personifies God. He's the express image of God. In fact, he's referred to multiple times in Scripture as the only begotten Son of God, which means he is uniquely God's son. He is not a son of God or a child of God as we would claim to be, but he is rather the unique son of God. He's unlike any other person that ever lived in all of human history. There is none other that you can point to and suggest for one moment that they possess deity in the way that Christ possessed a deity. You have got to understand he possessed full divinity alongside his perfect humanity. No other religious leader in all of history can claim that. Not Zoroaster, not Confucius, not Muhammad, not Ellen G. White, who began the Seventh-day Adventists, not Mary Baker Eddy, who began the Christian Science Movement, not Joseph Smith, who began Mormonism, or indeed Charles Taze Russell, who began the Jehovah's Witnesses, or even a modern false prophet such as David Icke, who claimed on national television to be the Son of God. Friends, there is none but Jesus Christ who fully, uh, fully uh, fulfills the credentials of being God. God's only and unique son. He stands apart from all other figures in history and he alone is the son of God. Now how do we know that Jesus is the son of God? Well we know first of all because of the divine proclamation. You see right from the outset of his ministry God the Father declared the Lord Jesus to be his only begotten son. At his baptism, we read, there came a voice from heaven saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Again, no other religious leader can claim such a phenomenon. No other founder of any other religion can say that the heavens opened and that the voice of God the Father was heard to proclaim them to be his own Son. At his transfiguration, when he went up into a mount with his inner circle of disciples, with Peter and James and John, he was glorified before them. And again, while he yet spake, behold, a a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. Hear ye him. Over and over, the scriptures tell us, That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. John in his gospel in chapter 1 and verse 34 says, And I saw and bear record that this is the Son of God. You know, after they witnessed him walk on the water, all the disciples agreed together of a truth, thou art the Son of God. 
When he was challenged on his identity, Peter declared him to be the Christ, the Son of God. When the Lord says, whom the men say that I am, they said, well, some say this and some say that. Some say Elijah, some say Jeremiah. And the Lord turned it to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? Peter stepped out from the crowd and he said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. He was blessed for that confession. Why, the angels of God declared him to be the Son of God, even at his birth. If you go back to the Gospel of Luke, or you go to the Gospel of Luke in our Bible in chapter 1, and of course we've just come through the, the Christmas season and we've recounted the nativity story. But right here, even at the outset of his life, as Mary is conceiving him, we find that he is declared to be the Son of God. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 32, the angel tells her, He shall be great, and he shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David. And he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. And then Mary said unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing I know not a man? And the angel answered and said unto her, The Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. Therefore also that holy thing which shall be born of thee shall be called, notice, the Son of God. My friends, this is an unassailable truth. Even the devils recognize Christ as the Son of God. In his hometown of Capernaum, they were heard to cry, Thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Mark tells us, And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. Let me tell you something tonight. If you deny that Jesus Christ is not as the Son of God, you're worse than a devil. You say, oh My goodness, why would God send me to hell? Because you're worse than a devil. If you deny who Jesus is, you deny what he's done, you put yourself in, in a very bad place, you're on terrible territory. Over and over again, we read this constant proclamation that Jesus is the Son of God. That's not a generalization. It's a title of deity. It's a title that immerses his identity with that of God. It says that he is God. And because of this divine proclamation, because the heavens opened and God the Father declared, Thou art my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, we can say with absolute assurance and confidence tonight, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. But not only because of the divine proclamation, but because he exercised the divine prerogatives. You say, what do you mean? We mean there were certain characteristics. There were certain actions, certain matters of conduct that reveal him to be distinct from all others, that reveal him to be the very Son of God. We know he's the Son of God because of his eternality. Now, I want you to get something tonight. I want you to understand that Jesus did not become the Son of God at Bethlehem. Some people get this idea that when he was born at Bethlehem, he became the Son of God. No, he was the Son of God before that. Then there are others who say, well, he became the Son of God at his baptism when the Father declared him to be so from the heavens. Friends, I want you to understand that from eternity past, Jesus Christ was and is the Son of God. 
You know, in John chapter 8, we have a very interesting conversation that takes place between the Lord Jesus and the Pharisees. And uh, in, that, in that particular passage, the Lord says, uh, the, the, in John chapter 8, the Lord says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, if any man keep my saying, he shall never see death. Then said the Jews unto him, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead. And the prophets, and thou sayest, a man keep my saying, he shall never taste of death. Art thou greater, now listen to their question, art thou greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom makest thou thyself? They said, who do you think you are? Don't you realize that Abraham's dead? Don't you realize the prophets are dead? How dare you invoke the name of Abraham and the prophets? Just who do you think you are? Jesus answered and said, If I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom ye say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I should say I know him not, I shall be a liar like unto you. But I know him and keep his saying. Your father, listen to what he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and he was glad. Then said the Jews unto him, Thou art not yet fifty years old. How hast thou seen Abraham? Now listen to what he says. Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. Now you've got to understand the import of that statement. Because what the Lord Jesus is doing there is he is employing what's called the tetragrammaton, the name of Jehovah, which translates into English as I am. And he says to him, you better understand before Abraham was, I am Jehovah, I am God, I am deity, I am the Son of God. And the Bible says they understood that fully because they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them and so passed by. He is saying that he predated Abraham. Now, Abraham lived around 2000 BC. How could Jesus have predated Abraham? Because he is without beginning uh, as the very son of God. As the son of God, he is eternal. Micah, in his prophecy, describes him as being from of old, from everlasting. Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 6 pointing to his coming at Bethlehem, refers to him as the mighty God and the everlasting Father. Look with me in John's Gospel, chapter 1. John's Gospel, chapter 1. Notice the first three verses. Introducing us to the Lord Jesus Christ by the title, The Word. And it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. You see what John is saying there? He's saying that the Lord Jesus, the one he's going to introduce you to in this gospel, is the same one who predated the beginning. He's the same one who created all things. He's the same one who said in the beginning, let there be light, and there was light. That's who you're dealing with when you speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other religious leader that comes remotely close. He bears eternality in his person. 
Not only that, he bears the names of God upon him. He is called the Lord in Matthew chapter 22 and at verses 42 to, to 43. He's referred to as the Lord in that passage. Let me just read that to you. It says, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, The son of David. And he said unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord? You've got to understand something. That title, Lord, is a title for God. The psalmist says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. You've got to understand that that's a title for God. You know, he, again, just thinking of that very first, the Lord is my shepherd. He's the good shepherd. That's a title for God. He says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. The psalmist says, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. Understand the temple of old, there was a holy of holies. There was one room that was holier than any other room. And in that room sat the Ark of the Covenant. And over the Ark of the Covenant, this box, there were two cherubim that, 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 were, that were pointing inward. And between those two cherubim rested the very presence of the glory of God. And the Bible tells us that that presence is none other than the shepherd of Israel. And now the Lord Jesus comes along and he says, I am the good shepherd. He's telling you that he is the shepherd of Israel. He's telling you that he is God, that he's the one who dwells between the cherubim. Why even the title Savior intimates to us that he is God. You see, friends, there's none who can save but God. There's no religion that can save apart from Christ. There is no belief system that you can hold to that will save your eternal soul. Your entire eternal destiny rests upon the very person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what uh, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10. He says, But now is made manifest by the appearing of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You think about that verse. And you go back into your Old Testament. And you go to the most wonderful prophecy. The prophecy of Isaiah. And you come to the 43rd chapter of Isaiah. And we read this in the third verse of that chapter. For I am the Lord thy God. The Holy One of Israel. Thy Savior. You glance down the chapter to verse 11. It says, I, even I am the Lord. And beside me there is no Savior. Do you hear what the Bible is saying here? You can't say that Jesus is a Savior and God is a Savior because the Bible says that besides God, there are no other Saviors. The Bible says, look unto me and be ye saved all the ends of the earth for I am God. And there is none else. He bears the names of God. He claimed equality with God. In the baptismal formula of Matthew chapter 28, he told his disciples to go ye therefore and to teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. He didn't say in the names of, plural. He said in the name of, singular. He said in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost. You see what he's doing there? He's identifying himself as God. In John's Gospel, chapter 14 and verse 9, he says, He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And in chapter 10 of that book, he says, I and my Father are one. 
They're one in essence. He claimed equality with God. I want to show you something in the Gospel of John this evening that when I first read this, it absolutely blew me away. John's Gospel, chapter 3 and verse 13. I want you to see something here because here's another prerogative of deity that belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ that no other religious founder in all of history could possibly claim apart from him. And that is that he claimed the quality or the characteristic of omnipresence. He claimed to be everywhere all at once. Say, wait a minute. Jesus claimed to be everywhere all at once. Yes, he did. Listen now, John chapter 3 and verse 13. He's in a conversation with a Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus. Watch carefully what he says in verse 13. He says, No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. Now watch this. Even the Son of Man, which is in heaven. Did you catch that? He says, no man has ascended up into heaven, but he that came down from heaven, speaking of himself, now he's standing on earth. He's speaking to this Jew in in Jerusalem. He says, no man has ascended up into heaven except he who's come down from heaven, even the Son of Man. Now look what he says, which is in heaven. What is he saying here? He's saying that I am in heaven and on earth at the same time. You see, because he came to earth as a man, he didn't surrender his omnipresence. He continues to have his presence felt and known everywhere throughout the entire universe. Remember many years ago, sitting down with a young Mormon missionary and showing him this verse. He was in trouble and he knew he was in trouble because his Jesus doesn't fit the bill. And so he says, well, he says, that's, that just means that, you know, like he says, like, I'm sitting here with you, but in spirit, I'm at home with my wife. He says, that's what Jesus meant. I said, that's not what he meant. I said, nor are you at home in spirit with your wife. He says, oh, yes, I am. I says, the Bible says the body without the spirit is dead. If your spirit's at home with your wife, friend, you should be dead. But you're sitting there perfectly alive because your spirit is within you. Your spirit is nowhere else but contained within your person. But Jesus Christ could say, I'm on earth and in heaven at the same time. That marks him out as bearing the prerogatives of God. You see, you've got to understand he is the son of God. He's omnipresent. He's omnipotent. By that we mean he is all powerful. He had all, he had power over nature. He stilled the storm. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000 with a few crumbs. He was with the wild beasts of the, of the wilderness during his temptation days. You know, he caused the cock to crow three times to warn Peter of his denial. He had power over nature. He had power over sickness. He had the lepers and the palsied and the lame and the dumb and the blind. Look with me in John chapter 9 for a moment. I want you to see something rather wonderful here. John chapter 9 and verse 13. Here we encounter a man who was born blind. Indeed, those around him believed that he or his parents must have sinned, that he was born in this condition. 
But there's a little interesting point in verses 13 and 14 of this, of this account. It says, They brought to the Pharisees him that aforetime was blind after the Lord Jesus had healed him. And it was the Sabbath day. Now notice what it says, When Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. Now you don't see this in the English But there is an understanding in the original languages here that what the Lord Jesus did this day, I think it's a marvelous thing, is he reached down and he made little balls of clay and he slotted them into the sockets where there were no eyeball before. And as the creator God, he made an eyeball on the spot and repaired that man's vision. You see, he had power over sickness. He had power over death. You know, one of the things I love about the Lord, every funeral he ever attended was ended in a resurrection. Did you ever notice that? Every funeral he went to ended in a resurrection. You could say he ruined every funeral he ever attended. Everybody told up to mourn. And the Lord Jesus come along and he sees the poor widow with her son in the city of Nain. And he just touches the coffin and the little boy comes back to life. He raises, the, he raises the daughter of Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue. He goes to the graveside of his friend Lazarus and he says, Lazarus, come forth. And Lazarus came forth. He had power over death, power over nature, power over, uh, over a sickness. He was all powerful. He's all knowing. He knows all about you tonight. He knows exactly where you are, he knows your burdens. He knows your heart's condition. He knows the hidden sins of your life. He knows those thoughts that run through your head that you think that no one else knows. He knows. He knows everything there is to know about us. He knew who Nathaniel was in John's Gospel in chapter 1. He knew who he was ever before he met him. He, he saw him resting under the tree. He knew him. He knew that Judas was going to betray him. That wasn't a surprise to him. He didn't hold up his hands in shock and horror when Judas appeared with the uh, temple police in, the, uh, in, the, in Gethsemane's Hill and, and they arrested him. He didn't say, well, I wasn't expecting this. He knew. He said, one of you will betray me. And he handed him the sop because he knew. His disciples said of him toward the end of his ministry, now we are sure that thou knowest all things. Peter, after his resurrection, was confronted by the risen Lord who began to challenge Peter on his commitment to Christ and on his love for the Lord. Three times he asks him, Peter, lovest thou me? And ultimately Peter gets frustrated and he says, Lord, thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love thee. You see, you can't get by Jesus. You can't pull the wool over his eyes. You can't deceive him. You can't trick him. You won't be able to get by him. You won't be able to convince him that you're anything other than that you are. Because he knows everything there is to know. And he knows all about you. He's absolutely omniscient. He's the son of God. And he received worship as the son of God. Again, post-resurrection, you remember the story of Thomas. Thomas was out when the Lord Jesus first appeared to his disciples. He comes back to a very excited group of men who begin to tell them, tell them that the Savior had come. That he was alive. And, they said, and he said, no, no. He says, except I see the print of his hands. Except I see the, the, the spear mark in his side. He says, I'll not believe. 
And then, of course, the Lord shows up and, and he'd heard that conversation. Though he wasn't present there physically, he's omniscient. He's omnipresent. He knows about that conversation. He was privy to that conversation. And he shows up and he says to Thomas, look, here's my hands. Feel my side, Thomas. And what does Thomas do? He falls at his feet and he declares, my Lord and my God. We call him Doubting Thomas. If he had any doubts before, he had no doubts now. He's now believing Thomas. He knows he's the Son of God. And all through Scripture, you'll find over and over again throughout the Gospels, he is worshipped. Time and again, people come bowing before him. Now here's the thing, my friends. Either Jesus is the Son of God or Jesus is not good. He's a wicked sinner because only a wicked sinner would allow men to come and bow before them and to, to speak of them as deity if they're not themselves deity. And he forgave men their sin. I want you to go with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 2. See, this is a prerogative of God. Only God can forgive your sin. Now, if you sin against me, I can forgive you. But if you sin against God, only God can forgive you. No one else but God has that capacity, has that right, has that prerogative. And we see the Lord Jesus exercise that prerogative as God. In Mark's gospel chapter 2. Notice verse 1, again he entered into Capernaum after some days. And it was noise that he was in the house. And straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. No, not so much as about the door. And he preached the word unto them. And they came on to, and they come unto him bringing one sick of the palsy which was born of four. And they could not come nigh or near unto him for the press. They uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Notice what he says to this, this paralyzed man. Sons, thy sin be, son, thy sins be forgiven thee. But there were certain of the scribes sitting there. And now watch, it says, and reasoning in their hearts. They didn't verbalize this. This was an etern- internalized uh, thought. Why does this man thus speak blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God only? And immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they so reasoned within themselves, he said unto them, Why reason ye these things in your hearts? (laughs) Only Jesus can hold a conversation with your heart. He knows what's going on. Then he says, what is it easier? Whether is it easier to say to the sick of the palsy, thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, arise and take up thy bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He saith to the sick of the palsy, I say unto thee, arise and take up thy bed and go thy way into thy house. And immediately he arose, took up the bed and went forth before them all, insomuch that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw it on this fashion. Notice what the Lord says in his challenge. He says, what's it easier to say? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven you or is it easier to say take up thy bed and walk? You know, any, any, anybody can tell you that your sins are forgiven. Does that mean your sins are forgiven? Not necessarily. 
Any Roman Catholic priest will gladly take you into a confessional box and hear your sins and he will absolve you off them at the end of the process and he'll tell you to go in peace. But does he really have the right? Does he have the power to tell you that your sins are forgiven? How can a man on earth possibly forgive sins against God in heaven? Someone sinned against you. Someone else spoke on your behalf without your permission and and said that you have been forgiven. You would be doubly offended. But any priest, any preacher, any person can say your sins are forgiven. That's easy to say because you cannot prove or disprove whether they are or not. So Jesus says this, what's it easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your bed and walk? He says, but just to show you that I have the power to forgive sin on earth, I'm going to cause this man to walk. I'm going to do the harder thing, something that you can witness, something that can be substantiated, something you can see, something that is proven. And he calls upon this man to arise and take up his bed and walk, and he does just that. And the people are amazed. But here's the thing. He wasn't just healing the sick man at this juncture. He was making the point that as the Son of God, he alone has the power to forgive your sins. Christ can forgive you tonight. I don't care what you've done, where you've been, how deep the problem. I don't care what shame it's brought you. I don't care what heartache it's left you with or what scars it's left you with. Jesus has the power to forgive your sins tonight. He alone is the Son of God. We know that because of the divine proclamation. We know that because he exercised divine prerogatives. And we know that because he fulfilled the divine purposes. You see, ultimately, he goes to the cross. And he does so in his Father's will. You see, the death of Jesus, friends, was no accident. Indeed, it was foreplanned from eternity past and foretold throughout the entire period of the Old Testament. Every line of the Old Testament scriptures is pointing their way toward him and and pointing out the fact that he would soon appear and that he would die for sinners. Psalm 41 speaks of his betrayal. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53 speak of his crucifixion and his sufferings. Psalm 69 portrays him as the trespass offering for our sin. In his death, there are some things that only Jesus as the Son of God could do. Even on the night of his arrest, I want you to think about something on the night of his arrest. John details that moment when Judas, alongside the temple police, Enter into the garden of Gethsemane, the Lord having prayed concerning his father's will, having committed himself to the cross. These characters enter into the garden and they're going to arrest the Lord Jesus. And Jesus, seeing them, goes forth and meets them and he says to them, Whom seek ye? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said unto them, I am he. Now in the King James Bible, the word he is italicized, which means it's added by the translators. So you can legitimately drop that word he. Here's what actually is said. It says, and then answered Jesus unto them, I am. He said, I am. Remember earlier, he said before Abraham was, I am. Now they come to arrest him. Who do you see? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. 
Now watch what happens in the next verse. It says, And soon as he had said unto them, I am, they went backward and fell to the ground. Now I want you to understand what's happening here. You know, there are some people who would say, Oh, they were slain in the spirit. You know, like those old charlatans on TV, waving their hands around like, you know, Paul Daniels. Give them a magic wand. There they go. Oh, shh, shh. These clowns are falling back. Oh, that's what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. No, that's not what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. It didn't say that they fell backwards. It says they went back and fell to the ground. The Lord Jesus is the Son of God. Said to these men. Listen. Before you arrest me. Before you put a single finger upon me. You better understand. That no man takes my life from me. I am going to lay it down. He says. So before you so much as touch my body. You are going to worship me. And he said I am. And they pushed backward. And fell down. And worshipped him. Just as you will someday. Bow before him. And can confess him as Lord and that to the glory of God the Father it's the same thing you see he's the son of God and when ultimately he goes to the cross a series of miraculous events occur that underline this truth of his person Matthew covers these events in chapter 27 of his gospel let's look there for a moment Matthew chapter 27 Matthew chapter 27. And I want you to go down with me to verse 45. Here's the first thing that happened that was miraculous. There was sudden darkness in the middle of the day. It says in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over all the land, that is over all the earth, until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, Lamassabachthani. That is to say, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I want you to understand that this is an event that is confirmed by ancient historians. That the world was plummeted into darkness for three hours in one day. You know, I don't know if you remember, but a number of years ago we had a total eclipse of the sun one morning. Everybody got very excited about it. We all made little cardboard boxes with holes in them and stood in our back gardens like idiots. But nevertheless, we wanted to see this thing happen. And when it happened, and the earth sort of hit this twilight moment, most people, certainly I did, you, you have this unnerving thought. Well, what happens if the sun doesn't come out again? <laughs> Didn't you feel a little unnerved? The temperature drops a little bit. And it's the middle of the day and you're thinking, mm, this isn't good. And people in ancient times took such events to be omens, to, to be some kind of precursor to an evil event. 
But here the sun disappears, not for just a a brief moment in time, but for three hours in the day, the world is plunged into thick darkness. Ancient historians confirm, at the moment of Christ's death, the light departed from the sun, and the land was darkened at noonday. That's a miracle. And then there's another thing that happens here. If you go down to chapter 51, here's another miracle. The veil of the temple of God was torn in two. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. You know, here's the thing. All through Jewish history, there was this barrier that separated man from God. As I mentioned earlier in the temple of God, there's a holy of holies, a holiest place of all. And between the what's called the holy place and the holiest place, there's this huge curtain that drops to the floor. This curtain is about 60 feet high and 30 feet wide. It's a span deep. It's, it's not a little, little tissue curtain that is easily torn. This thing is four to six inches deep. And it's ripped not from the bottom to the top, but from the top to the bottom in a miraculous act of God as Jesus gave his life for us. God pulls back the barrier and he says now for the first time in all of human history, anyone who believes on Jesus Christ as their Savior may have access unto God. What a powerful gospel. What a miracle. This wasn't an act of man. The veil didn't tear because of natural decay. It ripped at the hand of God Almighty, torn down through the middle from top to bottom, indicating that Christ's death had opened the way back to God for all who believe. And then simultaneously there's an earthquake. Look in verse 51 again. And the earth did quake. And the rocks rent, they broke. You say, well, what a coincidence. <laughs> really? You're going to put this down to coincidence? No, rather the whole earth cried out at the death of the Savior. And then notice what happens next, verse 52. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and he came out of the graves after, and came out of the graves after his resurrection, and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. And here's the point. Here's what God is doing in this miraculous resurrection that takes place at the precise moment that Jesus laid down his life for sinners. God is making the point that by his death, Christ has power over sin and over death and over the grave. And he allows and enables these to be resurrected that they may testify to the power of Jesus as the Son of God. You say, I don't believe it. Well, then you're worse than a devil. For there was a man standing right by Jesus that day who observed all of these things. And notice verse 54 speaks of him. Now when the centurion and they that were with him watching Jesus saw the earthquake and those things that were done, they feared greatly saying, and we know it was the centurion who said it, truly this was the Son of God. That's who died in your place. I want you to get that tonight. That's who bore your sin debt. 
Not Joseph Smith, not Muhammad, not some religious leader of the past, but the very Son of God, the one who took upon himself human flesh and died as a man in your place and my place. Now, either we believe that or we don't. Either you believe that or you don't. You know, later Paul uh, writes of this uh, event and he says, uh, had they known it, the princes of this world would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Should have Pontius Pilate had only known who it was was standing before him in his court, he would never have crucified him. If the Pharisees had known if Caiaphas and others had truly known, if they truly accepted, they would never have done the things to Jesus that they did. But they did do those things because they rejected him as the Son of God. They rejected his testimony. And they rejected every vestige of evidence that pointed toward his true identity. Dear friend, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian you're in danger of doing the very same thing. The same thing that Pilate did. The same thing that Caiaphas did. The same thing that the Pharisees did. The same thing that the Roman soldiers did. You're in danger of the same predicament as the young man who stood before Jesus all those years ago and said, Good Master, what must I do to inherit eternal eternal life? And Jesus reminded him that either he's God or he's not good. He cannot be both. And he's telling this young man, you better acknowledge me as the son of God. Or there's no eternal life for you. You cannot have it both ways. Either he is the son of God, he is who he says he is, or he's the greatest liar that ever walked the face of the earth. Now which is it going to be tonight? Is Jesus going to be your Lord? Or is he going to be a liar? That's why John in his first epistle said this, He that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not not God hath made him a liar. Why? Because he believed not the record that God gave of his Son. And this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. That's how stark a choice it is. He that has the Son is born again. He that has not the Son is dead in his sins. He that has the Son is completely forgiven. He that has not the Son will stand before God's great white throne of judgment and be cast into the lake of fire. He that hath the Son is saved and saved for sure. He that hath not the Son is lost for all eternity. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may believe on the name of the Son of God. Well, friend, which is it to be tonight? Is he to be your Lord? Or a liar? You decide. Is he the savior? Or a sinner? You decide. If Jesus is not God, if he's not the son of God, he's not good. You cannot have it any other way.
But if you want to be saved tonight, you need to acknowledge him for who he is and for what he did for you that day when he walked the hill of Calvary and laid down his life a ransom for your poor soul. Come to him tonight. Call upon him tonight. Call upon the name of the Son of God. Make him your Savior. Make him your Lord. He'll forgive you. He'll save you. And he'll keep you for all eternity. May God bless these thoughts to your hearts this evening.